Craig Hoffman. It's the Hoffman Show, HoffmanShow.com. Another day, another cool thing you can do on the site. You can now subscribe to the RSS, and very soon, unless Apple rejects me, we will subscribe to this very podcast on iTunes, so you can already subscribe via RSS. You can also subscribe to the blog via RSS. Uh, I don't really know what that means, but it was requested by some folks on Twitter, so you can do that. So add it to your daily uh, routine. Make sure you check back on the site. Subscribe. Uh, and then, as I said, the podcast, there'll be a button on the blog page of the site uh, that will say subscribe on iTunes. Click here, and it'll take you to iTunes, and that'll be glorious. So you can subscribe to the podcast. Today, on the show, Charles Robinson, on information when it comes to the NFL draft and, and the tale of the Laramie Tunsil story, a lot to go through on how much information is out there, what gets reported, uh, what teams know and don't know, Charles Robinson from Yahoo Sports, and then a really, really interesting story out of Kansas City. Danny Parkins, host of the afternoon show on 610 in Kansas City, is going to join me. He and his show taking a stand along with the community of Kansas City against one of the Chiefs' draft picks. Why? Draft pick accused and pled guilty to a domestic violence charge. So a serious story and what Danny and the community in Kansas City is doing about it deserves attention, so we will give it attention. Coming up. In just a few minutes. However, we start last night in the NBA, and I did something last night I haven't done in a while. Took notes on a game. A lot of times it's just mental notes. I'll kind of go back and reference my own tweets, and I use that as notes. But to actually take notes, in this case it was on my iPad as opposed to a sheet of paper, um, in the Heat Raptors game, and I'm really glad I did because that game comes down to every possession mattering. It's tied going into overtime. How did it get tied? The half-court shot by Kyle Lowry. We'll talk about that and the decisions around that in just a few minutes as well um, in depth. But it's amazing when you take notes on a game, when you go back and, and think of these little things that you're like, oh, that could be important later. And then lo and behold, at the end of a game, they become really important because every possession and the outcome leads to a tie score and then a chaotic end to overtime. Uh, so notes from last night's Heat Raptors game. We break it down chronologically. Uh, early in the game, Raptors in the first quarter only had two guys score, and they're down two. Obviously, that's not sustainable. And for them, that uh, really kicked off in the second quarter, changing in the second quarter. Uh, Terrence Ross just started going. Ross is a really inconsistent player, capable of big nights. He scored 50 once, um, but averages probably in the low teens per game. I mean, not a consistent player at all, but big upside. And in the playoffs, having a player like that can be a savior. You can have one of these guys who averages 10 points a game come in and drop 25 and you steal a game and that's enough to win a series because you're one-fourth of the way there. And so I wrote down, players can steal games. Is this the Terrence Ross game? If Toronto had won, this would have been the Terrence Ross game. Hassan Whiteside, remember early in this game, got hurt. Comes back uh, with the Raptors up one, nine minutes to go in the second quarter. And was just not himself. Um, I don't know whether it was the injury or what it was. But like three minutes later, Spolstra pulled him after he took a dumb jumper. And Whiteside, you're going, oh, is he is he out? 
did he have his series and now he's mentally disengaged? Um, because game to game, you just don't know. When he's super locked in, he's one of the best players in basketball, bar none. One of the most impactful players in basketball, bar none. When he's that, he's just a dude who's out there eating up a lot of space. And so Spolstra pulled him, and that was smart. Um, Dwayne Wade hit another three last night. This one was late in a shot clock. And this happened a little bit later, too, um, with Goran Dragic, where just complete bailout of a terrible possession. And that's what the NBA playoffs, and that's what basketball is. It's a make-and-miss league. For all of the other stuff that we break down and execution and all of that, in the end, you can have a horrible possession execution-wise where nothing goes right, and a guy hoists up a shot that he wouldn't otherwise take, and it goes in, and you go, oh, well, we got, in this case, three points. Good for us. That's the game. And you can have a great possession where you get the exact shot you want, and it rattles in and out, and you don't get any points. That's sports. That's basketball. And Miami had a couple of possessions like that in this game, including a Dwayne Wade three. Again, just his third since December. Hit two in game seven of the last round and hit one last night. And he hadn't hit one since December. Um, Late third quarter, Miami had started to gain momentum. Dragic had a four-point play in there. Really smart play by him, kind of backing up uh, as... His defender fought over his screen. It was Corey Joseph, fought over his screen, backed up into Joseph, and then wound up hitting the shot and the free throw. Next possession, Dragic turns it over, and Ross winds up with a steal and a dunk, and all of a sudden, a dead crowd in Toronto instantly became alive. This is very late third quarter. Nobody, either team, scored again in the quarter. Toronto had an opportunity there to close the gap, and if they can get possession, then that crowd is going bananas throughout the entire third to fourth quarter break. They come out with some energy in the fourth quarter. Instead, it was a missed opportunity. Uh, I believe they went down to the fourth quarter, uh, down five. Um, and that second garbage possession I talked about where Dragic is a three is early fourth quarter. Kind of took the crowd out of it for a second. Um, fast forward five minutes later, it's a six-point game when Hassan Whiteside and Goran Dragic re-enter 539 to go in the fourth quarter. Um, Toronto made some really, really smart plays um, in in route to their comeback. Some of them didn't work, but it's a, it's a process over results thing. You keep doing smart stuff, and eventually things are going to go right for you, even when Kyle Lowry was garbage, and we'll get to Lowry in a second. Um, but there was one possession that I thought was really smart, um, and the Raptors did this a couple of times where they pull Hassan Whiteside out of the lane by running different actions to get switches. And then just the guy who Whiteside switches on, he goes and floats out to the perimeter and you can't leave him open because he's a shooter. So DeMar DeRozan has the ball, sees Whiteside out of the paint after he'd switched on to Damari Carroll. Um, Carroll had the ball in a pick and roll. They got the switch and then Carroll moved it to DeRozan and then just stayed on the outside. And... DeRozan attacks. Well, this was one of the first times where you realized that Dwayne Wade wasn't going to let Miami lose. Because DeRozan attacks, and you probably remember the play if you watched the game, Wade comes from the backside and blocks him at the rim. Um, Wade's the best shot-blocking guard probably of all time. He's second ever, uh, if you take, it, it depends on what you count like Vince Carter as. Is he a small forward or a shooting guard? If he's a small forward, which I think he is, then uh, Wade's second to Michael Jordan, and if he, Carter's a 
guard. Basketball reference has him listed as a, a guard slash forward. Uh, then then Wade's third. Um, one of ten guard forwards all time uh, with te- with 500 plus blocks. But Wade's done it in 800 and change games. Michael Jordan had 1,072. So there's a good chance that depending on how much, if Wade plays like two more years, he'll probably pass MJ because um, he's within 100 blocks of him all time for most prolific shot blocking guard ever. Already he's as good as it gets in the postseason. I believe I saw something last night that he's one block in his career behind LeBron James in the postseason. Wade, 6'4", James, 6'9". He just plays so much bigger than he is from a height perspective. He's 6'4", who plays like 6'7", all the time. Whether it's his ability to post, whether it's the shot blocking, um, he's a very good rebounder for his size and position. Um, He's just one of the most uniquely skilled and talented players in the history of the league. And he has some skills that are absolutely legendary. And his shot blocking is one of them. Um, And it showed on that play just the instincts to come from behind and the ability to get that ball clean without fouling DeMar DeRozan, who made a really smart play to attack while Hassan Whiteside was on the perimeter. Wade just had none out of it. Um, One more quick thing from regulation. Dwayne Casey, really good job. Um, Down the stretch of drawing up plays, he gets a layup for Corey Joseph. He gets a corner three for Ross, his hottest shooter, when they need a three. Um, every ATO, out-of-timeout play um, that they had, after-timeout play, ATO, uh, that they had was a great look for the guy that they wanted. Brilliant job. And there's a lot more to coaching, and there's some stuff that Casey does that a lot of people don't like. But on when it comes to ATO duty... Casey or whatever assistant is drawing up his ATOs. I don't know. Sometimes it is assistants who specialize in that kind of stuff. Um, He was awesome. So that all leads to this. Joseph, they need a three to tie. Lowry, half-court heave, a prayer at the buzzer. He hits overtime. Ian Eagle on TNT, the call. Immediately on Twitter, the second guessing began. Why don't you foul? And a lot of smart people always up. If you're up three, always foul. And I, I understand that thinking um, because it's really improbable that you're going to even wind up in overtime. Uh, it's even less probable that you wind up losing. Although it does technically bring losing into the equation. You're up three. They make the first three throw. Offensive rebound gets tipped around, and you wind up with three if it lands perfectly with a shooter, whatever. Um, chances of that happening, not good. But it does bring losing vaguely into the equation. The reason you don't foul there is because it takes exactly what Kyle Lowry did, hitting a nearly 60-foot shot, a 50-foot shot, to tie the game. Just defend it better. Um also, Lowry stepped out of bounds, but that's okay. Uh, officiating gaps, kind of par for the course at this point in these NBA playoffs. But the mistake was to not pressure the ball. The mistake was letting Lowry get that far up court. And Justice Winslow was the one on the ball, and Eric Spolster said after the game, there was a concern that he might foul because he's a rookie. Um, 
or foul Lowry in the act of shooting, and that's why they kind of stayed back. Um, then put someone else on the ball. Put Wade on the ball. Like that's an easy fix. Um, but the mistake Justice Winslow made was not making Kyle Lowry pick up the ball immediately, and then not turning him in the backcourt. He let him get a free release. And Lowry gets a great look, as great of a look as you can possibly ask for when the look is that far away. And he hits it. Just pressure the ball and make it a much harder shot. Um, And if you foul him while he's dribbling, kind of who cares? Um, But the the mistake to me, I'm okay with not fouling there if you're Eric Spolstra, but you can't let him get that look. Um, but it's still, even if you do let him get that look, he's still got to hit it, which is kind of astonishing. Just kind of tip your hat and, hat and go to overtime. And then the Heat did a great job of keeping their focus in overtime, at least for the first four minutes. Um, the last minute was kind of a disaster. And Luol Deng is a veteran, a really smart player, a really smart guy. He was a disaster inbounding the ball in overtime. I don't know why Spolstra, one of the best coaches in the league, and maybe he's just playing the law of averages. Hey, there's no way this smart veteran guy who's a good passer and knows what he's supposed to be doing can screw up again. And Walding screwed up again and again and again and again. On inbounds. I would think that Spolstra goes with a different option next time. Maybe a guy like Josh McRoberts, a big who can pass the ball really well. To me, that's that's like your ideal inbounder. I remember a couple years ago during the Lakers championship runs, Lamar Odom was that guy, um, 6'10", great passer, great decision maker on the court. Um, if you have a guy like that, he's invaluable. And dang it, you know, 6'8", should be that guy, but he was a disaster inbounding the ball. Then um, the final play. And again, a bad inbounds by Luol Deng. Uh, and they don't call the foul on... Corey Joseph, they do call the foul on Ross, and then DeRozan on the ensuing inbound after the balls, they missed the foul, and then of course had to overturn the call because it was out of bounds on Wade, but they missed another foul call on uh, Dwayne Wade there in the corner after the the Ross three. Um, the travel no call. A lot of people very confused. It's the right call. You're allowed to dribble. He maintained or gained possession, I should say. And I confirmed this with a D-League ref last night, a friend of mine who's a ref in the D-League who's on his way to the NBA at some point in the next couple of years. You know, was in the summer league uh, last year, knows the NBA rule book, and was, has been a high, high-level college official before. And because Wade gained possession on the ground, as long as he dribbles before he gets up, no travel. He did. One foot came up, but the ball is on the way to being put on the ground. And before that second foot comes up, even starts moving to come up, Wade has put the ball down uh, and started his dribble. He's got a live dribble. It's amazing awareness by Wade. Um, it felt like Dwayne Wade had 45 points last night. He had 24. He just he had such an outsized impact on the game. Um, 24 points, 6 rebounds, 4 assists. Um, those might be reversed. He might have had 4 rebounds and 6 assists. I think it was six rebounds on four assists, though. Three steals, two blocks. It felt like he had 45. His impact on the game was enormous because he seemed to make every big play. That's why he's that guy. That's why he's a first ballot Hall of Famer. And still, at his age, he's still doing that. Hats off. 
And that's what happens when I take notes during a game. Craig Hoffman. Charles Robinson covers the NFL and more for Yahoo Sports, a great investigative reporter as well. Um, And those skills, uh, I think, will come into our conversation here as we are now almost a week removed from the first round of the NFL draft and the Laramie Tunsil fall and uh, everything else that happened that night. It was kind of crazy. And and Charles, that's kind of where I want to start. just kind of deconstructing the Tunsil story from your perspective, someone with incredible reporting chops, um, but also someone that I know from our conversations around draft time specifically every year where there's a lot of information about these kids that's out there that doesn't get out. So a video like this comes out. How many NFL teams do you think are surprised by this? Well, you know, I'm I, when it came to Tunsil, there were a number of NFL teams that you know, knew that he had off-field red flags. And, you know, it wasn't just his relationship with uh, Robert, you know, Kim Diche at Ole Miss. But, you know, I think there were some concerns that, you know, he had had some substance abuse issues in the past. I mean, I, you know, marijuana, I, I don't, you know, every team kind of skews differently on that. I think m- most teams just look at it as, if this is someone who's going to end up in the league strong program and be suspended, that's a problem for us. So, um, you know, I think there were some questions about that already for some teams. Some teams, um, you know, I think had raised that in interviews with him. As far as the video goes, um, you know, I was told by a couple of teams that they knew it existed and they had not seen it, but they had been told from, uh, you know, throughout their vetting process, they came across some people who had said there was someone who was, you know, calling around with a video or I guess emailing around, um, offering, you know, this video. Now the question was, was it ever going to come out? Um, you know, teams weren't really sure about that, but I also know there were a number of NFL teams that, um, did not do a deep vetting on Laramie Tunsil uh, because they thought he would never get to them and really had no idea that the video existed at all. And I can tell you the Miami Dolphins end up drafting him, but they did not wake up that day thinking we're going to draft Laramie Tunsil, you know, today at the 13th pick. So um, what I was told was when, when he got to the 49ers at seven, from seven to about 16 where Detroit was, you had a lot of teams that were sort of doing this uh, I guess what you would call a, a quick vetting. They were calling around trying to find out anything they could about him, knowing that their process on him had not gone deep just because they never thought he would get to them. So some teams, I think, a little surprised. Um, you know, anytime you see something on video, I think it's a little more jarring. And I know that was something that was played throughout war rooms, I would say probably across the league uh, as the draft started. Um, but, you know, I, I think most teams were aware that there were things, you know, off the field with him that, that were already concerns. More generally speaking, when it comes to especially draft prospects, guys that are still 21, 22 years old, fresh out of college, um, and information dissemination, um, if, if, say, you get something as a reporter, um, what's kind of your barometer for saying – okay, this is newsworthy, and in whether I tweet it out or put it in a column, kind of bury it somewhere, you know, that a player could have a drinking problem or a player could uh, have some financial situation where, um, you know, owes, owes a family member money or thinks that some family member could be problematic. What's your, what's your barometer for what you keep in and what you let out? Because obviously these teams know a lot of this stuff too, and we don't necessarily hear about it. 
Well, you know, for me personally, um, it, it look every team when they're when they're going through these processes with with guys, they're going to find certain things. And to me, you know, it, I don't know. It's it's hard to really determine because it's it's such a fluid process. A, what you can prove. You know, I, I try not to really report things that I can't prove in terms of specificity. So uh, let me give you an example. There was a quarterback um, amongst this year's class who, you know, is reputed to have a pretty significant drinking problem. Um, now, you know, it was someone who a number of teams looked at, um, you know, fairly prominent quarterback, uh, not one of the first two guys drafted, but, you know, a guy who uh, was definitely going to get selected, um, you know, at some point in the draft. And, um, but to me, you know, I can't prove that. I know a number of teams were concerned about it, and unless it was something that he or his representatives were going to address in some way, shape, or form, um, you know, just it's it's I'm I'm not going to go out there and and essentially start throwing things out uh, that I can't prove. A, a year ago, uh, I had someone at the NFL Combine tell me, uh, literally at the Combine started, look, Randy Gregory's going to fail his drug test, and that was something I couldn't prove, you know, at that time, there was just no way I could do it. And and frankly, if, if I were to report that Randy Gregory was going to fail his drug test or that someone said he was going to fail his drug test and then he doesn't, you know, I, I could have potentially damaged, uh, you know, this guy's career. So to me, a lot of that comes down to provability. Um, you know, even if teams are telling you certain things about certain guys, particularly when it's concerning substance abuse or, you know, violence or, or anything that, that you can't prove sticking that onto a guy's name, um, is, is pretty dicey. And so I think, you know, I, I'll just say, Hey, you know, this certain guy has, has red flags. Um, you know, I'll get as close to them as I possibly can without, you know, maybe pinning exactly what a team is saying about a guy. But for the most part, um, you know, I, I try to stay away from, you know, saying, hey, ex-quarterback uh, supposedly has a drinking problem without knowing that for a fact. How do you think teams weigh this stuff? Like, how big is the variance of off the field? Well, we lump it all together, which, you know, takes all the nuance out of everything. But for, for this question, I guess it's allowable. Um, off the field, non-football issues, we'll call it that. Um, how How big is the variance of which teams care about that? And in that on that scale is there any kind of consistency do the better teams not care do the better teams care and the character matters more to better teams and maybe it should to some teams that don't care about it as much i i think it's different for different franchises just like in college there are certain programs where they're they they are known as uh okay this is a program that you're going to have guys a lot of guys come out who um, you know, at some point during their college careers tested positive for marijuana while they were playing within those programs. Some, some prominent college programs have that rap. And I think, you know, for NFL teams, risk is very similar. There are certain uh, franchises that will take some character risks if they feel like, you know, either, you know, in their personal interviews with a guy, you know, it's something that can be managed or it was a mistake or whatever. So, for example, you know, Seattle, look at Seattle last year. They take Frank Clark. Frank Clark was off the board for a number of NFL teams simply because, you know, there was uh, an alleged uh, domestic violence incident, um, you know, in his past that got him kicked off the University of Michigan football team. 
Um, but, you know, Seattle sat down with them, you know, for, for whatever their reasoning was, they felt like, you know, this was something that when they drafted in the second round, it was a risk versus reward equation that worked out in, in their favor. And Frank Clark's been a very good player for them. Now, there are other NFL teams, you know, the Houston Texans are a pretty good example. Um, the Texans at times will bring in guys who are certain characteristics to take a look at them. Now, Doriel Greenbeckham, that's the guy they brought in last year. They worked him out. They were never going to draft him. And I thought it was interesting that they brought him in. And I, I asked someone specifically, I said, this is unlike the Texans. They, they rarely draft someone who has so many prominent red flags during their collegiate career. Why even bring the guy in and work him out? And it's simply because they want to complete their notes. They want to get as close as possible to look at him. They do like some aspect about him, but they want to see maybe over a longer t- you know, period of time in the NFL if you know this is a guy who's changed. So if he comes up on the free agent market in four years, maybe they'll take a look at him and know that, hey, we had a personal visit with him in the draft. We had a chance to ask him some tough questions. Um, and we have a complete dossier on him coming out in the draft. But some franchises, they'll take those risks. Some won't. You know, Cincinnati is another team that, you know, will take uh, some character risks uh, when they're weighing out uh, the upside. And, and you know, others, like I said, the, the Texans are one that won't. Of the teams that won't, how many of them, I mean, obviously you can't put a direct number or percentage on it, but how many of them are doing it out of PR concern versus – a valid, true, we don't want this guy either representing our organization or uh, because that's not what we stand for or a locker room issue of we want a certain type of guy in our locker room? I I think uh, it's different reasons for different franchises, but I think the the ones that you just spoke to, uh, those exist in some places. Now, you know, I, I bring up the Texans because I know Bob McNair, the owner, um, is just someone who certain red flags don't fly with him. And so, for example, um, if a guy fails a drug test, uh, say, you know, for marijuana in college, I think that, that the Texans are a franchise that if they weigh it out, they think that, you know, he has good character and, that, you know, whatever, this is a mistake or however you want to frame it. I think that is a guy that they could take a chance on. Now, if it's someone like a Frank Clark where there's an alleged – uh, domestic violence incident, there's an ugly police report, um, that kind of thing out there. Bob McNair is, as an owner, does not want to draft those kinds of players. He just, he's personally against it. Um, there's certain, uh, you know, Greg Hardy was another guy that, you know, when Greg Hardy comes onto the free agent market, he's there right now. The Texans are never going to touch him because they, it's simply a stance that Bob McNair is an owner is not willing to put himself in the line or, or, you know, have his franchise kind of given that, that tag of, you know, that's, that's a landing spot. Whereas, you know, Seattle's different. Seattle will take, um, you know, historically, even before the John Schneider era, um, you know, the Pete Carroll era, you know, it's been a franchise that will take uh, some chances. Now, you know, you, you look at uh, Paul Allen is, is a, uh, an owner who's far more removed from this franchise equation in terms of the day-to-day you know, runnings of, of, um, you know, the Seattle Seahawks. So, um, you know, I think sometimes it comes down to the owner. Sometimes it comes down to the PR aspect of it. Um, you know, sometimes it comes down to just how someone personally wants to deal, uh, with a player. And, and frankly, what's interesting about Seattle, their locker room, um, I feel like they seek out guys who have 
I don't want to say red flag necessarily, but someone uh, they, they seek out alpha males, guys who have a little more edge to their personality because they've seen draft picks that they brought into that locker room who just could not hack it in that locker room. You have to be able to stand up for yourself. You have to um, be a leader. You have to be a guy who's going to push people in practice, that kind of thing. And, you know, I think, I think that's actually part of the equation and why Seattle takes risks on certain red flag guys. And frankly, you know, you, you talk about a guy like Frank Clark, again, bring, I keep bringing him up, but he was that kind of guy in the Michigan locker room in college. He was known to be that edgy kind of guy who, who led that maybe guys were a little bit afraid of. You know, he was intimidating. That fits well in the, in the Seattle Seahawks culture. Let me ask you about one team or one more team specifically, and that is the Cowboys. Greg Hardy's now former team. And Jason Garrett always preaches about the right kind of guy, and then they bring Hardy in, and everyone collectively rolls their eyes. Now they draft a guy in Ezekiel Elliott, whose character is well-touted. Jalen Smith, uh, everyone says he's just, he's a great, great kid. And then obviously the injury was the concern there. Otherwise, he's probably one of the top two picks in the draft, if not the top pick in the draft. Is Jason Garrett's voice now, after the Greg Hardy experience and experiment, heard louder by Jerry Jones and Stephen Jones in that room? Yeah, I, you know, I think it is. You know, I think Jason Garrett is a big part of the equation and why you know Greg Hardy is no longer with the Cowboys, but also not someone that I mean, they've closed the door on Greg Hardy pretty much as much as you can close the door, and I think Jason Garrett is play a, a huge role in that, in that, you know, I think the Greg Hardy signing was very much Jerry Jones wanting to take a chance on Greg Hardy's talent, you know, gave him a contract that said, look, it's a pay to play contract. You have to show us you deserve it. And then I think over time, you know, Jason Garrett was, was able to turn to not only Jerry, but Stephen Jones and say, look, this was the downside of this. And clearly we have experienced the downside to a very significant degree. And then on top of that, we've got a guy like Randy Gregory, um, who we're already worried about when it comes to off the field. And he's in meetings with this guy. Um, this is a guy who can have influence on him. Uh, you know, I, I think there were a number of factors that Jason Garrett laid out. And, uh, you know, that, that played a big part in, in why the Dallas Cowboys, um, you know, Greg Hardy's just completely off the grid when it when it comes to their thought process and, and some of the defensive pieces that we're seeing some of the defensive uh I, I guess weaknesses that they still have going forward they could use a pass rush they could use a big hardy at the top of his game but they're not going to consider him and that doesn't mean look Dallas is they're not exactly risk averse i mean as you said i mean jalen smith that's still a risk now you know they, they have a lot more medical insight you know in, into that being that you know, they have a team physician who, who, or a team surgeon who did the, the operation there. But Jalen Smith's still a pretty big risk. You know, Ezekiel Elliott, you know, great, uh, uh, locker room guy, great leader at Ohio State. Um, no real red flags for him, but he also was a guy who was known, you know, from multiple NFL teams. You know, he liked to have fun in college. He really enjoyed his college experience. He was a guy who, you know, liked to go out and have fun at night. And, and, you know, some NFL teams nowadays, I think they're more scared of that. The, guy, the guys who like to go party and, and really enjoy themselves. And I don't think the Cowboys are that risk averse yet. You know, I think they'll still uh, take a talented guy who likes to have a lot of fun because frankly, that's kind of how Jerry Jones lives his life. Yeah, no, that's absolutely true. Jerry still likes to go 
and have fun. Uh, that party bus has quite the uh, has seen a lot. We'll put it that way. Uh, Charles Robinson, uh, senior writer, NFL writer, investigative reporter for Yahoo Sports, does a great job on pretty much everything he does. Uh, you can follow him on Twitter at Charles Robinson. Always appreciate catching up, my man. Absolutely, my pleasure. Craig Hoffman. Very interesting and, in my opinion, very cool thing that's happening out in Kansas City in response to something that is uh, unfortunate and, for lack of a better way to put it, not cool. Uh, Danny Parkins is helping be behind it, and I know he would want me to phrase it that way um, as opposed to he is the one behind it. Uh, He's a radio host, Afternoons, 610 Sports in Kansas City. Uh, and Danny, rather than me trying to explain what's important and, and what's going on here, I'm going to kind of let you set it up uh, of what's spurred what you guys are doing and then what you guys are doing in response. Yeah, thanks uh, for having me on, Craig. Um, so the Chiefs made the appearance of a pretty anonymous pick in the fifth round Saturday of the uh, NFL draft when they took this five foot ten speedster from West Alabama to help their kick and punt return game. He ran a sub four three forty yard dash at his pro day. Um, but then the name Tyreek Hill rang a few bells, and uh, oh yeah, he was at Oklahoma State. Oh yeah, why did he get kicked off of Oklahoma State? Because he punched and strangled his eight week pregnant girlfriend and pled guilty to reduced charges to avoid jail time, and so he's on probation until 2018. And some of the backdrop of this is Clark Hunt and the Hunt family is obviously one of the historic families in the NFL, going back to Lamar Hunt, who created the term Super Bowl. And it's a very influential family in the NFL, and they've always prided themselves, said that the priority is not only winning, but it is winning the right way and with the right character of people. And people in this community uh, bought into that and fell for it hook, line, and sinker over the years. And the other piece of context to it is just four years ago, arguably the worst incident of domestic violence in NFL history happened literally in the Chiefs' backyard when Joe Von Belcher uh, had a murder-suicide of the mother of his one-year-old daughter and left her an orphan when he killed himself in the parking lot of Arrowhead Stadium the day before a game against the Carolina Panthers. So if there's any organization in football that should have an understanding of the significance of domestic violence, it is the Kansas City Chiefs, and they valued the undersized fast guy over moral decency when they drafted Tyreek Hill. And Everybody raced to the mountaintop to get to the highest mountaintop with the loudest megaphone to have an anti-Tyreek Hill stance and an anti-domestic violence stance. And to be honest with you, that pissed me off because that's the easiest stance to have. It's a popular stance to have, and no one's going to disagree with you, and it's obviously the correct one. Domestic violence is wrong. But what bothered me about it is is that nobody was really doing anything about it, and everybody actually believed that the Chiefs were somehow different than the Cowboys with Greg Hardy or the Buccaneers with Jameis Winston or the Titans with Dorio Green Beckham or the Bears with Ray McDonald and on and on and on and on. And I just thought everybody knew that the NFL and the teams don't really care about domestic violence. They care about the appearance of caring about domestic violence. 
just like they don't really care about player safety with concussions, they care about the appearance of caring about player safety with concussions. Like, I thought that maybe fans didn't know that because they were blinded by their own team, but I thought that journalists and radio hosts and columnists and all that, they did. But the reaction from Saturday into Sunday into Monday morning was just finger-wagging and how could the Chiefs possibly do this? And it pissed me off. I'm like, what do you mean how could they do it? Everybody does this in the NFL. They value the bottom line. They value winning. They value money more than anything else. So uh, I stole the idea from WIP in Philly. They did this when the Eagles were playing uh, the Cowboys with Greg Hardy, and it was success out there. And that was a national story because of Greg Hardy. So, that you know, bigger city and bigger station and much bigger story. So that got national attention. Um, so I stole the idea, and we set a goal for 5000 bucks for the week. We partnered with the local domestic violence shelter, and the idea was don't talk about it, be about it. Like, if you're really angry about Tyreek Hill and the Chiefs, you're not going to be able to change anything with them. They've already made their decision. Let's try to turn a negative into a positive here in the community. And the Rosebrook shelter does great work. It's a 100-bed uh, emergency shelter. It's the largest like facility in the Kansas City area, like for a single unit facility, and they house men, women, and children, mostly women and children, who are escaping life-threatening domestic violence. And they have a hotline, and they have services, and they have rehabilitation, and they have uh, organizers and counselors that can help with court costs and the proceedings. And it's a it's a full-service shelter here in Kansas City. So we set a goal of five thousand uh, dollars to donate to the shelter. And we raised that in a day, and you had to put an end on the GoFundMe, and we did that. We did it on a Monday, and we put the end at Sunday at midnight. So we have until Sunday at midnight, and at last check, we were over eleven thousand uh, dollars. So it's just a little thing that is probably not going to make a huge difference in the grand scheme of things, but it's better than doing nothing. So uh, if people want to donate, they can go to GoFundMe.com/Rosebrooks. GoFundMe.com/Rosebrooks. And anything that they can do to help is more than just yelling and wagging your finger. So I think it's interesting that the reaction was what spawned your, not just the the Chiefs. I mean, because you said it's, it's very pragmatic. NFL teams do this. And is it right? No. Uh, but this is what they do. They care about winning. They care about the bottom line. Um, but it's the you said it's the reaction, not necessarily the pick uh, that made you want to do this. Yeah, I mean, it's both, obviously, but again, like the, the obviousness of the reaction to the pick is just, it's obvious, you know, and I, I try yeah. always to do something a little bit different, not like intentionally, but just because the obvious doesn't interest me all that much. And uh, so, you know, if they would have just made the pick, like I probably would, it, it, it is off of the pick, you know, but it, the reaction did really piss me off because... It, it strikes me that people are kind of tone-deaf to what's really going on. I mean, the Ray McDonald situation in Chicago last year is the perfect example. If that was a no-name defensive lineman, he was on the wrong side of 30. He's not a very good player. They signed him to a non-guaranteed contract. He had already had multiple incidents of domestic violence allegations uh, in his past. Uh, he'd been accused of rape and had been arrested for a domestic violence incident at his birthday party, the 49ers cut him, the Bears brought him in, the Bears said that they had vetted him and did their due diligence and they would never endanger the community, just like the Chiefs did, and then they got a bunch of egg on their face because Ray McDonald got arrested again on the same alleged victim for domestic violence, and most domestic violence victims are repeat offenders. 
So, it, and there was no, Ryan Pace is still the GM of the Bears. Like, the world kept spinning. Bears kept selling tickets. And they took a risk on a player who they thought could help their defensive line a little bit. And so it, it just, I thought that people knew that the NFL doesn't really care about this stuff. And it really bothers me that people actually buy the BS that they sell in the appearance of caring. So, you know, when they do Breast Cancer Awareness Month, 8% of the sales of those things actually go to the cause. Like, they care about the appearance of caring about domestic violence. They care about the appearance of caring about player safety. They care about the appearance of caring about uh, breast cancer awareness. It all is self-serving, either to make them money or to win football games. And I don't know how anyone could deny that at this point. No, but it seems uh, whether it's you know the reaction, even if it's just yelling and screaming, um, or something like this where people are actually taking action that fans and media do seem to care more in this post Ray Rice world. Is it sad that it took the post you know the Ray Rice video and us you know and so many people seeing what it looks like? And my response to the video was very much of what did you think it looked like? But it seems like the culture around the NFL has changed on some level, um, and I think that the reaction of raising double your goal in, in just a short amount of time uh, shows that there are people out there that care. So as the Chiefs are watching this and see this, has there been any reaction from the team? No, I let them know that we were doing it on the front ends just to see what they would do. And since it's been up, I haven't heard anything. People keep saying, you know, you should pressure the Chiefs to match. A, they won't, and B, that's not the point. You know, um, they they – Andy Reid and his wife have done work for domestic violence shelters. I don't think that each individual is evil. You know what I mean? That's not, that's not what this is about. It's about sacrificing what I think we could all agree is morally correct, denying someone the privilege of playing in the NFL uh, while they're still on probation. Like I, have, I believe in rehabilitation. There are hypocrisies here. I've paid for Floyd Mayweather fights. You know, mm-hmm. I, I cheered Kobe Bryant. Uh, you know, that we, we all have hypocrisies here, and I just think that people need to admit them on the front end. So it, I don't expect the Chiefs to do anything because I think an acknowledgement of it would just shine a brighter light on their own hypocrisies. So it's not really about them doing anything because, you know, I've had media members here asking if I think that they're actually going to go through with it and sign him to a contract. Like, again, yes, of course. Like, what what am I missing here? These teams do not care. Like, they they. You know, Ray Rice didn't get a job just because there was video, and so that makes it different than a lot of these other ones, but also because he's not good anymore. If it was Todd Gurley on that video, he'd be in the NFL. Like, period. End of discussion. There is no debating there, in my opinion. So maybe I'm a cynic. cynic. I would argue I'm too much of a pragmatist. Like, I feel like this is not that complicated, and so I think people are making it more complicated than it is. So what is the goal? As much money as possible. You know, we've already exceeded the goal. And so I honestly, I, I think it's kind of, I think it's fizzling a little bit on a local level, just to be perfectly honest with you. Um, maybe nationally someone will catch wind of it and it'll, it'll reinvigorate a little bit more life. But we've already doubled our goal and we've already made our point and we've already raised uh, more awareness, I think, than any column or article uh, could raise. So I, I honestly, I think it's already been a success. And... We'll see what happens between now and Sunday. I'm going to keep tweeting about it and keep talking about it on the show this week. And, you know, the next time I get John Dorsey or Andy Reid or Clark Hunt on, but, you know, the, the interview request is in, I'm thinking it's going to be a while. 
Um, yeah. I, you know, I, I certainly will bring it up to them, but they, that's the other thing. People say, what was the risk? You know, or what, what, why was it worth it to deal with the backlash? There is no backlash. Like, there is no consequence. Like, they can deal with a negative column or an angry radio host. Like, they, they can deal with it. If there was no negative consequence tangibly to the bottom line of the Dallas Cowboys with Greg Hardy, why would anyone think there would be for the Chiefs with Tyreek Hill? So, to be honest with you, the goal, it's already been accomplished. But let's see if we can raise more money for Rosebrooks because they do great work. And hopefully people will just be a little bit more conscious of an issue that isn't about sports. It's about society. So if people want to donate and help the cause, every little bit helps. So uh, they have an operating budget annually of over $5 million. They provide 57,000 uh, safe nights per year when you average out that they are at 99% or 100% capacity at all times, which means that 99 or 100 beds are filled 365 days out of the year. So it's, uh, it's a great organization. And uh, if people can help, that'd be great. GoFundMe.com slash Rosebrooks. Yeah, even if it doesn't necessarily change the culture or anything with the Chiefs, that will affect people's lives, which is great. I have one more question for you because this is not the first time. And I know this isn't about you, um, but but this is not the first time that you have done something uh, when you've seen so- something that you see as an injustice in your community as a radio host. Why do you... You know whether it was what was going on with Mizzou, which is very close to to your audience, or uh, some of the other times that you have not been afraid to, sh- even if it's straying away from sports or it's just a, a small connection to sports, to take on these bigger issues that affect the community that you serve as a as a radio host. I mean, I think it's kind of self evident. You know, like uh, we we have a platform, and I live in the community, and I have interests that go beyond sports. And I'd like to think that I'm a fairly well-read and well-intentioned and well-principled person. So, you know, I got into this business because I love sports. And the best compliment that people can give me is that I distract them and get them through their day, right? Like, that's like the baseline compliment that I love. Like, you have a job that you don't like, so you listen to me, enjoy my job, and that helps you get through your day. Like, that. That, to me, is always the baseline compliment. And so we do ridiculous things. We like to laugh. We like to not take sports too seriously. But every now and again, if something is uh, an issue and it affects the community or it's a personal issue to me or my co-host, Carrington, or my producer, Ben, you know, hopefully our audience is loyal enough to the ridiculousness that we do the vast majority of the time that they'll stick around uh, and listen and help us and uh, spread the word on causes that really matter that are tangentially or directly related to sports. So it's just about trying to make the job and the forum count for a little bit of good, slightly beyond the distraction from the day-to-day life occasionally. Yeah, and it seems self-evident, but it is painfully rare that people actually act on it in our business, especially on the sports side of our business. So I've always appreciated that about you on top of the the great job you do on a day-to-day basis. So if you want to help Danny out, follow him on Twitter at Danny Parkins, or just go straight to the link uh, of the GoFundMe, gofundme.com slash Rosebrooks. That's R-O-S-E-B-R-O-O-K-S, gofundme.com slash Rosebrooks. Danny, best of luck, continued success, man. And uh, this is really cool. So thanks for coming on and sharing a little bit about it. Yeah, thanks, Craig. I appreciate you having me on. Call it a wrap. We call it a wrap today with something that we'll basically never do, uh, which is political talk. But uh, there's kind of a major story last night 
and that is Ted Cruz dropping out of the Republican race and thus Donald Trump winning one Indiana being the presumptive nominee. And the thing is with Trump, like you can talk about politics without talking about politics because there's still this disconnect of Trump from being political, which is partly why like you can just bash Trump and no one be like, oh yeah, quit talking politics. It's like, uh, no, I'm talking Trump. And that's part of the reason probably why he's able to do this is because there's still some level of denial about his candidacy. Um, but just I, real quick. And and I'm not some political expert. Like I don't I don't follow politics with any vigor. Um, I, I will start following it more as we move towards November. I will vote, obviously. Um, I hope that's an obviously. Everyone should. Um, although with the Trump winning nomination, you wonder, uh, with some people, the whole should part, but that's kind of the thing, right? Like you can say that and very few people are going to push back like, Oh no, Trump's awesome. And if you do, you're like, why? Oh, he speaks the truth. And then you show him John Oliver's make Donald Trump again. And I don't understand where the grand, the ground is to stand on. Um, but the, the thing I want to talk about just real quick is not the inconsistency and not the racism or the fascism or the sexism or any of that, uh, that is self-evident with Donald Trump. But I watched a special yesterday on the raid to kill Osama bin Laden. And Barack Obama was interviewed for it, as was Hillary Clinton, um, as were many. Because at the time, Hillary Clinton was the Secretary of State. It wasn't like, hey, what would you have done as President Hillary, presidential candidate? It was because she was in the room, in the Situation Room, as the raid was happening as Obama's Secretary of State. And um, a lot of his, the, like the, the naval commander who was in charge of planning, um, the leaders of the CIA at the time... Uh, all of the important principles in the decision-making process and the execution and the planning outside of obviously the Navy SEALs who uh, were on the mission. But from President Obama to his top advisors and top aides, everyone was interviewed for the special. And the detail and the decision-making and all of that was incredibly cool to hear the thought processes and the risks and some of the planning and, for instance, um, you know, they said like, oh, what if they, they had kind of come up with plan A, B, and C and President Obama said like, well, what about plan D and laid out a set of circumstances um, and they were prepared for every possible outcome of what could happen if things went horribly south um, and they wound up engaging the Pakistanis, say, in, in warfare basically um they were ready for that um in the end plan a didn't wind up working out because one of the, the helicopters crashed and uh they they wound up being able to execute plan b pretty well but the painstaking detail that goes into an operation like that and at some point i'm just thinking like man what if trump was the one making these decisions and you think of how rash he is in decision making and just how off the cuff and um, even the other day, like he's like, oh, I can be presidential and you're seeing it now. Like he's starting to act more presidential because he can turn it on and off as opposed to that being who he is. Like he's an actor, he's a entertainment personality. And the thought of him making 
that decision is just horrifying. Um, and so, like, I, I'm assuming most people listening to this because your people aren't considering voting for Trump. I mean, maybe there are some who just think Hillary's the worst, assuming that she's the Democratic nominee and just refuse to vote Democrat. And you're thinking about voting along party lines. And I understand that to some level, but uh, I'm an independent. Um, I tend to lean one way, but I'll listen. And that's all I encourage anyone to do is listen. But as you listen, think of it through that context. Think of it not just like the who you like more. Um, there's the old, oh, who would you rather have a beer with? And that's how some people vote. And like that's that's really not how you should vote for president because the it's it's more than just jobs. It's more than economics. It's more than foreign policy. It's all of it. And that's all I encourage anyone to do as they consider now that we have Donald Trump as the presumptive Republican nominee. And um, I know Sanders won last night, but it's still an uphill battle for, battle for him. And barring something really weird happening with the email scandal, you'd imagine that Hillary Clinton is the Democratic nominee. But just like that's the prism that I would encourage anyone to think through uh, when you start considering who you're going to vote for in November is when it comes down to planning – the raid to kill Osama bin Laden or whoever now, obviously if they can you know, nail down one of the top ISIS leaders and the decision-making and the thorough detail that would go into a decision like that, who do you want with the final call? Because that's the stuff that matters. Um, all the other stuff matters too. your, your financial policy, your, uh, you know, your, your decision-making on taxes and um, economic growth and all of these things matter but so does the ability to do something like that and consider the repercussions of what could go wrong and that you are you know that you're going into a a quote-unquote ally in pakistan's territory and there's a lot of stuff that could have gone wrong with that and obama had to weigh all of it and whether you like president obama or not is irrelevant like these are the stuff that he was considering and so the documentary was cool if you have a chance to to see it um cnn i'm assuming will re-air it at some point or maybe it's available on demand um it's obama we got him the bin laden raid um it was very interesting and again whether you like barack obama or not i encourage you to watch it and then uh think of think of the president through that prism in terms of who you want to be next that's all that's really all um and also watch John Oliver's make Donald Trump again because it's awesome. Uh, all right. Thanks to uh, Charles Robinson. Thanks to Danny Parkins. Uh, again, at Danny Parkins on Twitter has the direct link, or if you just want to type it in, go to gofundme.com slash rosebrooks. That's R-O-S-E-B-R-O-O-K-S, all one word. Gofundme.com slash rosebooks to help out with what Danny's doing in Kansas City to help domestic violence victims uh, in lieu of the chief's signing or drafting a domestic abuser so uh, we'll continue to follow that story this will be it for podcasts for this week and we'll see if I can do one from the road next week Uh, I'm going on vacation this weekend and then driving across the country um, over the next week so I might be able to do one I probably won't be able to have a guest on but uh, maybe if I I watch some NBA playoffs I'll just hop on and take notes again and do a a shortened podcast uh, shortened show and that'll be that for next week. I'll still blog, um, although there might be some travel blogging, which I, people enjoy, I think. Um, or they don't. But all right. All right. That's it. 
thanks for listening to the Hoffman Show. Subscribe on iTunes when it becomes available. Subscribe otherwise if you're so inclined uh, on the RSS feeds. And thanks for listening. Goodbye.